The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. On today's episode of MediTalk, I sit down with Dr. Michael Gannon, who very kindly answered frequently asked questions all about induction. We collated the questions from many beautiful women who responded to a question call out via the social media pages for St. John of God Hospital Subiaco. So thank you to all those wonderful questions and for all your support. Dr. Gannon is a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in both private and public practice. He's also the head of Department of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco. So what exactly does it mean to be induced? Uh, so labour can uh, come on spontaneously or it can be induced. So it very simply means the use of various methods to bring the labour on. Uh, sometimes there are maternal indications, so reasons that it might make things safer for the mother. Sometimes there's fetal indications, reasons it's it's um, safer for baby, sometimes a combination of the two. Uh, and uh, frequently uh, there's no medical indication to induce labour, but it can be timed to suit uh, the mother, uh, the rest of her family. Um, and as long as the baby's mature and the cervix is favourable, that's a very reasonable choice. Mm-hmm. And then are there different methods? So there are different methods. Uh, the um, Perhaps the final common pathway for most women induced is to artificially rupture the membranes or mm-hmm. break the waters and to use uh, a syntocin on drip to bring on contractions. Uh, that's the method of induction for most women. Uh, to arrive at that point, a lot of women will need cervical ripening. So they might need one of... Uh, uh, a few different forms of prostaglandin, so a synthetic version of the natural hormone involved in spontaneous initiation of labour. So, so we apply that directly uh, to the cervix. Um, um, sometimes we use mechanical methods, so mm-hmm. balloon catheters to dilate the cervix. Um, they all have their strengths and weaknesses, um, and ultimately the choice comes down to uh, the experience of the obstetrician. So what does it mean by the cervix to not be ready? So the terminology we, we quite often use is to say that the cervix is favourable, which, which means ready. Uh, and in, in simple terms, if the, if the cervix is soft uh, and it's easy enough to break the waters, that's usually, the, that's usually what we mean to say the cervix is, is ready or favourable. Uh, and, that, and that's a key consideration. If the cervix is closed, then there would be many circumstances where it might be prudent or safer to wait for the cervix to ripen, for the cervix to be ready. Um, Of course, there are many other circumstances where we do induce labour with a closed cervix. Uh, If there is any um, uh, immediate threat to the wellbeing of mother or baby, then you induce labour whether the cervix is ready or not. Uh, And indeed, in some circumstances, you might decide to deliver by caesarean section instead. Mm -hmm. And when should you have an epidural? Uh, Well, an induction and an epidural don't necessarily come as a package. Right. Um, So the overwhelming majority of women induced in this hospital do have an epidural, but the overwhelming majority, especially of first-time mothers, even if they labour spontaneously, um, will have an epidural. Um, So... 
There are circumstances where you could have an epidural prior to induction, and there are circumstances where it might be safer and better to be established in labour before having one. So they um, are conversations that should be individualised, um, and they each individual case should be judged on its merits. And if you're induced, are you more likely to have an emergency caesarean? Uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, and in fact, there are many circumstances and there's good evidence to show that induction of labour probably reduces the risk of emergency caesarean section. So sometimes it's a trade-off. And again, every individual case should be considered on its merits. Um, there's a small number uh, of women who, uh, well, there, there's, a, there's a small excess risk of caesarean section in women induced when their cervix is closed. Um, but the caesarean section rate increases every day you go past your due date. So um, it's commonplace for obstetricians to recommend induction of labour just before or just after the due date. And one of the benefits of that is actually to reduce the risk of caesarean section. So does that mean that every day after your due date, you're at more risk? Is, well, is that what the stats show? Well, yep, certainly there is there is evidence uh, from multiple sources that has emerged in, in the last uh uh, 10 to 15 years uh, to uh, to show certainly what I'd always suspected, uh, that the further you go past the due date, um, uh, the greater risk involved. Um, um, now, those risks include caesarean section and also the risk of nursery admission. So they're two things that we try and avoid. Um, of course, each individual situation should be judged on its merits. Um, and if there is uh, a very low suspicion of any problems with the pregnancy, then it's entirely reasonable for women to choose to go a, a short period of time time past the due date. Um, but when obstetricians tell patients um, uh, that, that their advice is to deliver at or not long past the due date, well, that's based on very strong scientific evidence. I think it's fair to say that there is a reasonable amount of variation between uh, different obstetricians, and that's based on their their experience and their and their training. Um, certainly, my, one of my favourite lines I say to my patients is that not much good happens after your due date. Um, now, that does not mean that every woman needs to be induced on their on their due date, but what it does mean is that uh, um, that uh, at that late stage of pregnancy leading up to the due date, there's a variety of, of factors that go into consideration. So is there any um, sign of trouble in terms of the, the way the, the placenta is working? Uh, what's the blood pressure like? Uh, what's the cervix like? Mm. What, what does the mother want? What's her social situation at home? And you put all of that information together and you try and find the the, the best compromise between what's safest and and what uh, uh, and what the couple want. Do you uh, eat before you're induced? Uh, again, it depends on the circumstances in which you're being induced uh, and uh, and how you're being induced. So, for example, when we're when we are ripening the cervix. Um, starting an induction of labour the night before, we would certainly um, um, uh, feed our patients because that process might take 12 hours, it might take 24 hours. Uh, once you're in established labour, the stomach doesn't empty so well, so it's a, so eating too much in labour, although instinctively it would seem to make sense that having food gives you strength to deal mm. with labour, the reality is that stomach emptying stops in established labour, so normally it's a good idea to reduce oral intake once you're in established labour, uh, but certainly you can eat before you come into hospital. Great. And um, what about does induction 
affect your recovery and future pregnancies and an ab and the ability for someone to breastfeed? Well, the process of induction has absolutely no impact on um, on breastfeeding success rates uh, and, unless the process of induction leads to a long and drawn out labour. Um, so, again, this this is where each individual um, circumstance needs to be judged on its merits. Um, there are some women who are induced with an unfavourable cervix who might end up having a labour that's a whole lot longer and they might be tired, they might be exhausted, they might be stressed and that might impact on their ability to make breast milk. Uh, equally, there's a, 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 another group of women who will have a, a very efficient, predictable safe and enjoyable labour, then that might contribute to them having um, a better experience with establishing breastfeeding. And can you tell who might be, have what type of experience someone will have? Is it hard to predict until you're actually in the moment and, and induction is happening? Well, certainly uh, the, the case with any labour, whether it's spontaneous or induced, is expect the unexpected. Uh, but, but I think a lot of the time when the cervix is favourable, when the cervix is ready, you can reliably predict a, a positive experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that's why um, uh, it's it's commonplace in this hospital for women to be induced for, for non-medical reasons. Um, now, non you, you, would, you should never induce a baby that's not mature, and I think you should be very cautious in inducing when the cervix isn't ready for non-medical reasons, but that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be considered uh, and the pros and cons of uh, um, of waiting or inducing being explained to the patient. And how long between induction to having a baby? Is there a sort of, it sounds like it could, it doesn't really predict time or shorten time? Well, again, everyone's different. So if, if, if you are inducing someone with a catheter or with prostaglandins in their first labour, starting the night before, that process might take 24 hours and it might take more than 24 hours. If you're inducing a woman who's had a baby in the past and the cervix is favourable, it might be all over in an hour and a half. Um, so the um, there are various different reasons why labour um, is induced. I think one important point to make too is that a, a lot of the conversation around spontaneous versus induced labour um, suggests that uh, that there's a you know there's a very clear distinction between the two. That that's not that's not quite true. A, a, a lot of women, especially in their first labour, will have uh, the the uh, the process of labour augmented. Uh, so in other words, they might have their membranes. Rupture that might have their waters broken, they might have the syntocin on drip. So they're things that are identical to being induced, but it's common for first labour to be, uh, by its very nature, slower or more inefficient. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of women um, uh, who fit into a middle group, if you like. It's, it's it's not it's not an induction and it's not a spontaneous labour, but but it's uh, their experience. Um, they haven't chosen the day of delivery, but the process is very similar to being induced. And when should you be admitted if you are going to be induced? Uh, is so it again, usually that, the night before or it can differ? So when you're admitted depends on the method of induction. Mm -hmm. So it's commonplace uh, to be admitted the night before uh, if the cervix is not ready uh, and especially in, in first-time mothers. Um, so to to gently allow that that process of cervical ripening to occur overnight, and perhaps for all the action to start uh, the next time during the day. Uh, and it's nice to know you're in a 
setting where you're surrounded by health professionals that can take care of you and support you through the process? Oh, very much so, you know, and I think that that is, that, that's part of the part of the thinking behind a lot of women uh, requesting induction of labour. So, so yeah, I mean, one common issue is people who live quite remote from the hospital. Mm. We look after a lot of patients in this hospital who live in the country. Um, uh, Perth keeps getting, getting bigger and bigger. There's some people who live um, uh, an hour away from the hospital even though they live in Perth. Yes. Um, and they might draw comfort from knowing that they're actually going to deliver in hospital. Mm. Um, um, some... Um, some labours should be monitored closely because of concerns about the well-being of the baby. Uh, and again, things like that lend themselves to um, uh, to, for, to labour being induced. Um, but the, the, the indication for induction and what the cervix is doing and a number of other factors will all influence uh, whether or not induction occurs at all uh, and, and exactly what form the induction takes. And what do you think mums should know, you know, first-time mums, what do you think they should know about induction beforehand? So I think a really important um, bit of knowledge, and I hope this comes across in the antenatal classes, is that spontaneous labour and induced labour aren't as much different as as their reputation might, success. Might, might suggest. They're actually very, very similar with a lot of overlap. Um, the... Um, but I think that what women are entitled to is is accurate information about reasons why the obstetrician might think that induction of labour um, is indicated, uh, a discussion on uh, alternatives to being induced, um, um, explaining exactly what the method is based on what the vaginal examination findings are. Um, and I think women are entitled to um, ask those questions um, about why do you think I should be induced, especially if that's not what they want to happen? Um, of course, just as common as uh, an obstetrician pushing the agenda is the patient pushing the agenda. Mm. Uh, and sometimes we're in a position where we say it's not safe to induce labour. Um, so every day of the week I would see a patient who's really struggling between 36 and 38 weeks gestation. They might have lower back pain. They might have pelvic girdle pain. Um, they might be just looking forward to... Um, the reprieve from all sorts of other symptoms mm. in in pregnancy, but uh, I suppose our job is to is to um, explain the importance of baby reaching a point of maturity, uh, mm. and of course, the longer the pregnancy goes, the more likely the more mature baby is, the less likely they are to um, have any minor morbidity, like lung problems or like jaundice or like breastfeeding problems for not being quite ready, um, uh, and and of course. Every day that goes by, uh, the cervix is more likely to ripen, they're more likely to go into labour themselves and they're more likely for the induction process to be um, smoother uh, and possibly the labour shorter. And is induction painful? Well, all labour is painful, uh, <laughs> uh, whether labour is induced or, or labour labor is spontaneous. Um, so there, there are a lot of women who have very, very positive experiences from induced labour, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of women who have very positive experiences from spontaneous labour. Every single case should be judged on its merits, um, and those um, two alternative approaches, doing something or, or waiting for something to happen, um, a lot of information, a lot of thought should go uh, uh, into each of those situations. Uh, uh, and, and a big part of that, a huge part of the considerations should be um, the preference of uh, of, of the mother, um, 
uh, and bearing in mind how uh, those decisions impact on the rest of the family. Do, yeah. do you think there's some myths out there about induction or some sort of, I don't know, old wives' tales or that, that maybe we fear induction for some reason or we think... Um, natural labour is better than induction. You know, is there, I thought it could be an opportunity to sort of put those myths out there and put them to rest. Well, there's certainly myths out there and there's always myths when it comes to childbirth. Uh, look, and I you've probably I, heard them all. Yeah, probably heard them all, yeah. <laughs> look, I think, for example, um, the uh, yeah, I think women delivering their babies in this hospital are very fortunate. This is a, I can say that this is a fabulous place to practice medicine and I'm very proud to, to work here. Um, the reality is that uh, something like two thirds of babies in this state are born in, in public hospitals, uh, where if you like, uh, maternal request inductions are rare. So most people being induced are being induced because there is a serious concern about the well-being of mother or baby, or um, they're at or past forty-one weeks. Um, so part of the bad reputation that induction of labour has mm. is. Um, uh, is the the difficult births that happen uh, in uh, to that majority of women who still have their babies in in public hospitals? Um, um, for example, if you're if you're induced uh, at forty one weeks, so uh, a week or more past your due date, uh, and your cervix is closed, the chance that you end up having an emergency cesarean section is nearly fifty percent. Mm -hmm. So, um, not surprisingly. Um, uh, there's a lot of people who have had their labour induced who have had what they regard as negative experiences. Mm. So I think that patients are far less likely to have a negative experience if things are explained to them as they go. So the reason why they're being induced, uh, the reason why things are happening in the order that they're happening, and explaining explaining to them and debriefing in the days after delivery and at the six-week check uh, uh, exactly what did happen. Um, and that, that's, um, that's less important when everything goes brilliantly but it's more important when when um, when labour or delivery hasn't gone exactly how everyone would have liked it to have. And if you've been induced for your first child, is it likely that you'll need to be induced for future children or you can, you know, it might be a totally different experience for the second child? So the answer to that question, it depends a lot on why you were induced for the, for, for the first one. Yeah, so, yeah, for example, if... If you're induced because you had diabetes, well, then there's a there's a reasonable chance you'll have diabetes again. So, so there's there's that side to the answer. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, no, it's not necessarily the case if you're induced first time that uh, you'll need to be induced in the future. Um, uh, of course, the majority of women who are induced with a favourable cervix have a very positive experience, and then they probably say they'd like that again. Um, so, which uh, is only human nature to want another positive experience and put all those things in place that, you know, had the outcome that and the experience that you were seeking the first time for the second time round. Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one com common conversation I've had with patients over many years is that a lot of women who are induced uh, feel as if they've missed out on the wonderment that is a spontaneous onset of labour and instinctively that mm. feels like the right thing to do. Uh, where that can be frustrating is that, that you know that you delivered a really good outcome because you induced labour um, uh, and, and someone wants... Uh, perceives that there's something superior with a different experience. Mm. I, I think that um, I think I, I keep coming back to the same point that you t you treat every mother and baby pair, every individual pregnancy uh, on its own merits, uh, and um, 
you listen carefully to what the patient wants. Um, uh, but I think one uh, one observation I would make is that there's less uh, thought that goes into what's the cervix doing in making the decision. Mm. So, so, so for me in, in my practice, that's that's important. Number one, that's important is that. Uh, if the baby's mature and the cervix is ready or favourable, there's there's not much downside to having labour induced. Um, if the cervix is closed, uh, then uh, perhaps waiting, monitoring the pregnancy closely, uh, maybe that's the right the right decision. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are all these factors that that should go into the decision making. And is there any lasting effects on the baby? There's no lasting effects on a baby uh, whether labour is induced or, or labour is spontaneous. Um, so there are um, so although um, the uh, yeah, that for example there although it's actually very uncommon but but th- there might be uh, problems related to vacuum extraction or forceps delivery. Uh, for a start, they're extremely rare. Uh, but yeah, I was about but, to say, are they, is that common anymore? Not really. Oh, those sort of Does, births, yeah, yeah, remain common. But they remain common in spontaneous labour and induced right. labour. Um, um, and again, I would emphasise that point. I, I think that there's um, uh, that a labour that ensues spontaneously and a labour that's induced, they're not as different as, as, as seems to be made out in a lot of information available um, uh, to patients um, you know, on the internet and uh, mm. um, uh, wherever else people get their information. Yes. And what is a stretch and sweep? So a stretch and sweep refers to a technique at vaginal examination where you place uh, your gloved finger inside the cervix um, and uh, you might stretch it gently or you might sweep um, the um, the uh, the membranes off the cervix. So the, so the, the membranes are... Uh, loosely attached to the cervix and in that area um, uh, that area is rich in prostaglandins so I refer to prostaglandins as the, the medication we occasionally use to induce labor um, those natural hormones are inside the body mm-hmm. so a stretch and sweep is not an alternative to induction of labor a stretch and sweep is not a type of induction of labor but a stretch and sweep is something that might be seen to reduce the latent time to spontaneous labor coming on um, so if you've got a um, one thing that I would commonly do is if you've got a plan to induce a patient at the uh, at the end of the week, you do a vaginal examination so you can work out the safest way to get them into labour. You can work out whether or not it's a good idea to induce their labour. Uh, and, but while you're there, you might do a stretch and sweep because it might be their preference to spontaneously labour. Right. And how long does it take? Oh, it takes a few seconds. Oh, yeah. very quick. And then can your partner stay with you during that process of induction? So what we've dealt with in the uh, last uh, couple of years is the uh, yeah the spectre of COVID uh, um, affecting just about everything uh, we do uh, in this hospital and and beyond. Um, uh, but there's been no move away uh, from recognising that the uh, uh, that the partner or husband's a very very important part of the experience. So uh, we. Um, not only allow, we encourage women to have support persons uh, in labour um, and that includes having a support person during induction of labour. Um, some partners will choose to go home 
if um, for during an overnight admission for cervical ripening, um, some will be told by their partner that they're staying. Uh, uh, everyone, everyone's different, and that depends on the personal circumstances. You know, are, are there other children at home? What's the reason for induction of labour? How long is it before we expect that that labour will start? Um, uh, but um, yeah, no. Certainly, we uh, yeah, not only allow, but we encourage people to be supported, uh, whether yeah, whether their labour is spontaneous or whether their labour is induced. So, if, I suppose a few key messages is that uh, uh, that induction of labour is a very safe way in into labour, and it's a very common way into labour uh, in this hospital and beyond. Um, induced labour and spontaneous labour are not as different as you might think. Uh, but if you're in com- if you are uncomfortable or wary about the reason why you're being advised to have your labour induced, feel free to ask your obstetrician questions. It's their job to to answer them to your satisfaction. Um, uh, and I think that the the um, the medical thinking, um, uh, the findings on vaginal examination, uh, and the um, Uh, the woman's desires are all very key factors in deciding whether or not to induce labour and exactly how it's done. Thank you so much for your time today. That's been my pleasure. A big thank you to Dr Gannon for sharing his time and knowledge and to learn more about Dr Gannon and St John of God Hospital Subiaco visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member please share as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.